what you should do is you should go down that feminine hygiene aisle and then you should just take a picture of everything there and just say, okay, I don't need any of this. Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In 2015, actress Gwyneth Paltrow touted the benefits of vaginal steaming. To this day, that idea that vaginas need to be regularly steam cleaned continues to make headlines around the world, and there's a lot of conflicting information out there about it. I mention this because this is just one of many examples of the fact that people just don't know all that much about vaginal health, and it can be hard to find reliable sources of information. There's also this huge industry built around the idea of making women insecure about their genitals in order to hook them on various products. So what do you really need to know? That's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. I'm going to be speaking with a gynecologist who's going to set the record straight for us on vaginal health. We're going to discuss everything from vaginal care to pubic hair removal to boosting sexual desire. We're also going to bust some popular myths about women and sex, including whether doctors can really tell if a woman is a virgin and whether the vagina becomes looser with frequent sex. My guest is Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, a board-certified OB-GYN and author of the book, Let's Talk About Down There. And OB-GYN answers all of your burning questions without making you feel embarrassed for asking. This is going to be a great and very practical conversation, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Before we dive in, let me give a special thank you to the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University for supporting this episode. The Kinsey Institute is celebrating their 75th anniversary, and you are invited to join in the celebration. There are special events each month this year, including everything from art exhibits and film screenings to lectures and courses. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to learn more or follow the Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for updates. Also, if you'd like to support sex research and education, please consider making a donation so they can continue their mission in the years ahead. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make your gift today. Hi, Jennifer, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Justin. You have the most perfect podcasting voice. I could just listen to you all day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to speak with you. So you do a lot of work in the area of sex education, from writing books to having a YouTube channel to a popular TikTok that has millions of followers. So let me start by asking you to tell us about your own sex education journey. What was your personal experience with sex education like, and how did that shape or inspire the work that you're doing now? Oh, that's such a good place to start because the answer was, there was barely any education. And I think that is truly why I'm here because in my mind, the content that I'm creating, it's like for the 12 or 13 or 16 year old me who was just left to like figure it out on my own. And this was as my 11-year-old likes to say, back in the 1900s, which was really different. And you didn't have the internet where you could look things up (laughs) all the time, which then makes me feel really old, but it's true. And now with the internet, it's great. We can look things up, but it's not always good stuff. So I went to Catholic school all my life. And it's not to say that Catholic schools are in and of themselves bad, but it definitely meant that the education we got about our bodies was very limited. It was abstinence-only education. It was fear-based education. It was Sister Claire in high school telling me basically that I would go to hell if, you know, if we had sex. And the only 
Alternatively, we're given, and this is literally what she told us. She said, well, instead of having sex, you guys could make a salad together. And only now do I realize how funny that really was that she suggested that. But um, there were no practical tips, really. And even just the basic education of periods, it was very basic. And it was was just that now that you had a period, if you had sex, you'd go to hell and get pregnant. So very much limited, very much fear-based, not at all comprehensive. And don't even get me started on it being inclusive because that wasn't even a thing back then. And really, that's that's what I, I keep myself in mind when I create this content. And I will sometimes get comments from people who say, don't people, how do you not know this? Like everybody knows where their clitoris is or how do people not know not to put that in their vagina? And my answer is, no, a lot of people don't. And it's not because they're not smart. But when you don't talk about it and you're told that your body is shameful, you're not going to ask your parents about it. So you end up on the internet. And I like when I'm there to meet people there, but it's not always the good stuff that's out there. So that's where all this, all these shenanigans started. And it's, it's been really fun. Yeah. My experience was similar. I went to Catholic school for much of my life as well and Mm -hmm. didn't get a lot in the way of sex ed. We were not instructed to eat salad instead of having sex, but (laughs) (laughs) we didn't necessarily get any more useful information than you did. You're jealous. I know you're jealous though. You wish that you had been in that class. I know. Yeah. It was, it's a pretty, I I remember where I was sitting in the classroom and I was like, what is she talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing that. So let's talk vaginal health. Now, at the top of the show, I mentioned this idea of vaginal steam cleaning, which is part of this much bigger industry selling various so-called feminine hygiene products. And a lot of people seem to think that their vaginas are inherently dirty and in need of constant cleaning. So let's step back for a second and talk about where this idea comes from anyway. Why do so many people think that vaginas are dirty? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I would like to back up and say that I'm thrilled to be here because you were the first guy podcast that I'm on. And while I talk about this with lots of women, like sometimes the guys don't want to really think so much about this. So I love that you're out here having this conversation and that you opened it up talking about Gwyneth Paltrow, who I loved in Shakespeare and love, but now she's every gynecologist's, you know, just nightmare because she really started a lot of this and think if she had started this with the right message which is not that your vagina needs to be steamed. You do not need to put a jade egg up in there and it's not going to cure your fertility or make you less depressed or whatever else, you know, they claim. So yeah. And then, so she, you know, she sells this candle and all these crazy things and then people buy it and and it just re-emphasizes the idea of feminine hygiene. And just even think about the words feminine hygiene. So feminine, okay, but hygiene. So you're inherently saying that Feminine parts need hygienic products. Where is the male hygiene aisle? Because I haven't seen it yet because it does not exist because we have not sexualized that part of, you know, hygiene products. So you've got the Summer's Eve, you've got the Vagisil and they've made new products with new labels. They're, they've explicitly said they're trying to target younger people because they want to make more money. And they put these products out that make you think that your vagina is dirty. It needs to be steamed, cleaned, douched, dry cleaned. I don't know but you don't need it. And their products often lead to more problems, but really at the crux of it, because I've had a lot of my followers say, why do you care so much, Dr. Jen? Like, if I just want to use that, like, it's not that big a deal, but I think it is because it's getting in your psyche and it's psychologically making you feel that at baseline, your vagina is dirty and you need to do something to it. And that keeps us as vagina owners down thinking that anything related to our vaginas is dirty. So we don't talk about it. We don't normalize things. And then we end up 
being in our 30s and our 40s and our 50s, not even knowing how our body works. And it's just not fair. Yeah. And I think you're right that so much of this is cultural. You know, it's the messages mm-hmm. that we're getting from advertisers and companies, but the history goes back so much further. You know, for example, if you consider the term pudendum, which is used to refer to the female external genital anatomy, that term literally means to be ashamed, right? And so right. it's sort of like right. you have this terminology that's rooted in yes. this idea that there's something problematic and dirty and impure uh, about the genitals. And I think that that just sort of laid the basis for the way that we're thinking about and talking about it now. And we think that like that was something from a long time ago, right? And as somebody, I'm like, I love the history of medicine. Other words too, like hysterical, um, you know, lots of things. Um, We don't even realize that they're still rooted in these words. And we might think, well, that doesn't really affect us. But it does because it's carried forward and now it's it's mainstream in terms of, you know, jokes, you're being hysterical, hysterectomy, the root of that word. And yeah, I love that you you bring that up. So if you have a vagina, what do you actually need to know about cleaning and care? So I know you said you shouldn't steam your vagina, but should you do? So do you use feminine yeah. wipes or uh, washes? What should and shouldn't be part of your self-care routine? Mm-hmm. I love it. So what you should do is you should go down that feminine hygiene aisle and then you should just take a picture of everything there and just say, okay, I don't need any of this. So I don't, <laughs> you should not be using any, you know, I could say you could set it on fire, but that's illegal. You should not do that. And I would appreciate your zeal, but let's not commit crimes. But um, yeah, you should not be douching. You should not be putting anything internally in the vagina because it is what we call a self-cleaning oven. And I know that's a weird term, but Truly, the vagina is really good at taking care of itself and flushing out bacteria and old cells and discharge. That is what your discharge is. And when you do more, you upset the delicate balance that's happening in there between the good and the bad bacteria. And that's when you can get irritation and infections. And it can even make you more likely to, if you're exposed to a sexually transmitted infection, to to get infected. So really bad stuff. And so I, I, I lead with less is more, knowing that some people, you know, want to use a certain wash or some people want to you know, remove their pubic hair. And it's not, my goal here is that like, why are you doing it? Are you doing these things? Because you just, that's what you want your body to look like. Or do you feel ashamed and you feel like you're shamed into it? So it's all about doing it for the right reasons. When it comes to cleaning the vulva, less is more. I say start with water, but it's totally fine if you want to use something more. So I talk about using cleansers, which are better for the pH um, of the, the vulvar skin rather than soaps, which can be drying. So there's things like Cetaphil and Cerave and um, uh, dove soap. If you do want to use soap, kind of the, you know, the unscented, that the gentle one that everyone knows about. Um, and those are great because they have less irritating ingredients in it. And then if you want to remove your pubic hair, we could talk about different ways to do it, but the least invasive way is to trim it, to not actually use anything that's removing it at the root. And then if you are going to shave, I mean, again, yes, people do. And I have a whole YouTube video about like, these are the rules I break. And that's one of them. I do use a razor and I don't do any of the things that I tell people to do, but it works for me. But I, with the caveat that sometimes, you know, your sensitivities change, people's skin is different. And so there's different things that you can do, but truly less is more, but businesses don't make money off of that. So they don't want us to believe that. I mean, there's even, have you seen the deodorant Lumi deodorant? So it's this idea of a deodorant and it was made by an OBGYN and I actually used to use it and I loved it um, under my armpits, not elsewhere. Um, And the idea being that it actually um, kills the bacteria. 
that make odor, which sounds awesome, right? Like totally cool. And then six months into using it, I had a horrible rash, so I had to stop, but that was just me. But it's marketed also to be used everywhere you have odor. So your, you know, the pubic area, your feet, but their marketing is so shame-based. They talk about your stench down there. They have like all these like, you know, pictures of like gaseous, gaseous substances coming out from between people's legs. And it's really, it's a cool product in theory, but they do use some sense. But the idea that they're shaming you, you know, the stink you have down there, like, why, why are we doing this? And it's by an OBGYN, which bothers me even more. Yeah. (laughs) So the key point though, is less is more, and you Mm -hmm. probably don't need all of that stuff that's out there. Mm But we do have this ingrained idea that the smell or taste of our Mm -hmm. genitals is not what we think it's supposed to be. So what do you advise people who have those concerns about smell or taste of Mm -hmm. their vaginas or vulvas? What do you do in cases where people are concerned about that kind of thing? Yeah. I think if you're concerned, it's always good to get checked out because it can be really hard to know what's normal, what's not, especially if you've never been taught especially if you're just going through puberty or maybe you've just started having sex and you just don't know. So we are always more than happy to have you come in and we can do an exam. We can look under a microscope. We can do tests for infection. We can do a little pH paper test and we can say, yeah, it looks like you have bacterial vaginosis. That's why it smells this way. We can totally give you a medicine for that. Or we can use it as a teaching moment to say, I'm not seeing anything abnormal. And this might sound really weird, but I smell hundreds and thousands of vulvas and this smells like, you know, this does not stand out to me as like, oh, this is not right. Like this is what can be normal and use it as a moment of education and say, it's okay. Vaginas are supposed to smell like vaginas, um, but here's some things to look out for. And it can be a really good teachable moment um, because that can happen. And unfortunately, I've seen some people who have come in and have said, well, my partner says that it doesn't smell like his last girlfriend. And I want to be like, okay, first of all, that's just so wrong. And second of all, like, okay, like if he generally has a concern that there's an infection, cool, but, um, but let's talk some more about what your partner thinks this is supposed to smell or taste like. Cause there's a lot of stuff on social media, you know, that it's supposed to, you can eat pineapple and it'll taste like this or a pina colada or whatever. And that's like, that's like so rooted in the shame of like, why do you think when you go down on somebody, it should be a pina colada? Cause it's not, it's a <laughs> vagina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a pina colada. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all of that. And I know you mentioned pubic hair briefly a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that a little bit more because increasingly that's a big part of people's efforts toward genital cleanliness. And mm-hmm. for example, if you look at surveys on why people remove their pubic hair, one of the most common reasons people report is hygiene. Of course, mm-hmm. this can happen for other reasons. For some people, it makes them feel sexier. It increases their confidence or comfort, or it's a way of conforming to social norms. So as with anything, right. it's complex. But right. as a gynecologist, let me ask for your take on pubic hair removal in terms of are there any risks associated with it? And what do you recommend is the safest ways to do it? And I mentioned this yeah. in part because there are actually a fair number of pubic hair grooming injury incidents that lead people to emergency rooms every year. Mm -hmm. So you need to take care when you're trimming down there. I like, yeah, there you go. That's a commercial right there for (laughs) (laughs) for your pubic care emergencies, urgent care center, you know, (laughs) remove the hair. We'll see you down there. (laughs) (laughs) 
But you're right. So I love, that's a great, uh, a great, interesting point that people are removing their pubic hair for, you know, again, multifactorial, but for hygiene. And I get it, you know, let's say, you know, your periods are heavy or you feel like it smells more because you've got hair down there. So you want to remove it. Totally get that. Um, but I do want people to know that when they remove their pubic hair, they're actually making it more, more likely and they are more susceptible to infections because pubic hair has a purpose, which if I had merch, which I don't, like that would be the t-shirt that I would Pubic have. hair has a purpose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You'd be like, I never made that. Um, but it does. It acts as a barrier between your clothes and the sensitive vulvar skin. It helps to re- reduce friction. It helps to trap bacteria, which is why you may think, well, that's why it smells and that's why I have to get rid of it. But it's keeping that bacteria from going on up into the vagina, into the cervix, the uterus. So it's kind of like a bouncer, which is awesome. Um, and when you remove pubic hair, you can get little nicks and cuts no matter how safe you are. And that can make you more susceptible to infections of the skin that can lead to things like cellulitis or abscess, which are little pus pockets. Um, or even like I mentioned before, like sexually transmitted infections. So it's sort of like a you know, you might think you're doing it to be cleaner, but actually the opposite is true. But I get it. Some people want to do it. And, you know, when I tell people like you're more likely to have infections, like in terms of, you know, risk reduction behavior, like, are you going to die if you remove your pubic hair? Probably not. But, you know, ideally you don't remove it. But if you do, there's ways to make it safer. You know, again, starting with trimming with scissors to if you're going to shave to you. And these are the rules I don't follow, but I tell people, if you want to be really good, you use a new razor blade every single time you don't, you, you know, use a single razor blade. Um, you use something like an unscented, um, like a cleanser or something to help reduce friction. You can exfoliate beforehand. You can keep it moisturized afterwards. And of course, if you see something that looks like there could be an infection, you know, you, you get checked out. Um, Waxing is a big one and I can see why it's, you know, super quick, but if you're going to wax, you know, test a small area first, make sure you go to a clean place. They use new wax every single time, new applicators. Um, it's, I think it's worth to pay more money to be at a good place for something like that. And then when it comes to like laser treatments and electrolysis, just like with the waxing, the cheapest place is not always the best one. So make sure you're going to people. This is what they do all the time you know, you, you've got reviews, their place is clean and, you know, starting with, with testing small areas. So it's not that removing pubic hair, you know, if you do it, you're giving into the patriarchy. It's all about like, why are you doing it? And rest assured that when you come to see me in the office, you leave 20 minutes later, if you were like, what did my pubic hair look like? I would be like, I, I don't know. I don't even know. Like I just, you see so many, like, it's so, you know, think about like the car mechanic you go to. Do you think he remembers like, what was under the hood necessarily every single time after seeing, you know, taking care of 20 people in a day. Like we just don't. So we'd actually rather like less is more. You don't need to do anything special for us. Yep. Less is more is a good message. Mm-hmm. And I also appreciate you mentioning that, you know, here are the best practices, but even me as a physician, I don't necessarily always follow them because, you know, I think oftentimes we look at physicians and experts and all of these other people who are giving advice and we sort of assume that they're this model of perfection and they're doing all of these things in their everyday life but right. you know we're all human we all make our own choices and the yeah. best thing you can do is make informed decisions so that's what all we try right. to do on the show it's what doctors try to mm-hmm. do in their office is give you the best mm-hmm. available information so that you're equipped to make the healthiest choice for you yeah and that's now, why i love using social media because people can say okay, she says she, you know, this is one she will not compromise on. Like, this is bad if I do this, but, but yeah, like, let's be a realist and here's how to do it safely because we're all people. We're all human. Like it's just how it should be. So 
That is so true. Now, we have much more to discuss, including common myths about women's sexual health, including whether vaginas get looser due to frequent sex. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Female sexual pleasure is a topic that is rarely discussed in sex education, which means that people often have to learn about this all on their own. However, there's a great resource I can recommend to help called Beducated. They have a library of online courses covering several topics, including women's pleasure. These courses address how to awaken pleasure and explore your body, techniques you can try with a partner, everything you need to know about the G-spot, and more. These courses are designed to inspire intimacy and build sexual confidence. So if you're looking for tips and education on female pleasure, check out Beducated. Try them all today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 70% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Laymeller, as the coupon code. It's just $7.99 per month after that, and the discount is locked in forever. Check the show notes for the link or visit beducated.com and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. And we're back. So Jennifer, let's talk sex myths. As a sex educator myself, one of the big ones centers around the hymen. There's this popular idea that you have this piece of tissue called the hymen that surrounds the vaginal opening until first intercourse. And therefore, a doctor can look and simply tell whether a woman has had sex or not by inspecting the vagina. So is that actually true? Definitely false. Um, So false. So many, you know, we can laugh and be like, that's such a silly myth. But you know this as a sex educator. And you know, there are still people doing these quote unquote virginity tests and in other countries where if they, you know, fail the virginity test, those girls are not allowed, you know, they don't get married off or they, you know, there's an honor killing. I mean, we're talking like severe, severe myth that has some pretty bad consequences. So, so no, they have hymen, there's hymenal obsession, you know, in this country, in the world. And as you know, it's this tiny little piece of tissue. It's a remnant some people have it, you know, more of this than others, and it can totally break or, you know, just not be there from other things like, you know, riding a bike or whatever. Um, so the idea that you can do this virginity test and it was what it was TI and his daughter a few years now ago, you know, was talking about this, like, yeah, that's, that's disgusting. And also there's so much underneath all of that, right? Like, why are you doing this to your daughter? So, yeah. So, um, even to this day, like just yesterday, I had somebody comment on my YouTube video about losing your virginity. And he's like, no, no, Hymen is there for a reason. And then we know, and you're lying to us. And I'm like, why would I lie about this? So yeah, we can't tell. We can't tell if you've had sex. We can't tell if you masturbate. I mean, I know if you've had sex, if you're pregnant, but even then you could have done IVF and maybe you never had sex. So yeah, like we're just so obsessed with virginity and I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, the hymen is one of those things that is a very misunderstood piece of anatomy. And I've seen some Mm -hmm. studies that find that the hymen can take many different appearances. And so it doesn't always look the same, even when it is intact. And so, you you know, there's this idea that it should be simple and easy to tell whether somebody has had sex or not. It's just like, nope, that's just not an accurate reflection Mm -hmm. of reality at all. And it says a lot more about us and our attitudes towards sex. Another popular belief is this idea that the vagina becomes looser the more sex a woman has. And case in point, I've received several emails from men who are concerned that their wives or girlfriends are cheating on them because they think her vagina feels looser. And every time I get one of those emails, I just groan and shake my head. (laughs) So, What do people really need to know here? Does the vagina actually become looser as a result of frequent sex? No, because, okay, these partners that are emailing you, 
what if they were having sex with their wives 10 times a day and like that would be okay and her vagina wouldn't get loose but now suddenly because they perceive a change it's got to be some other guy right and and what does that say about his concern about his own penis there's so much there that we can dig into um no the vagina is a muscular tube and it's it's pretty awesome because it's able to dilate as you know when you give birth to a baby and then it kind of you know goes back it, you know, can it change as a person ages? Absolutely. And that's normal, but it's not like your vagina only has a hundred uses before it starts to loosen up. And then like, it just gives up and it's like, you know, um, no. And, and there are legitimate things that can happen. You can have, you know, childbirth injuries or, you know, you have things where you have prolapse or, um, the pelvic floor the you know, the connective tissue underneath it can separate and muscles can separate. So you can definitely have changes in your anatomy, um, but it's not because you're having too much sex. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it just goes to show that penis and vagina sex, right? Like that's like considered the standard, even though the vast majority of people with a vagina do not even orgasm that way. And it, you know, yeah, there's so much to be said there. There absolutely is. So thank you for (laughs) helping us to better understand that. Now, one other myth I often hear about is this idea that if you have an STI, you'll know it because you'll have symptoms. And this leads a lot of people to think that they don't need to get tested for STIs unless symptoms appear. So what do you want people to know about this? And what kind of STI testing routine do you recommend for women? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, this is another one that's false. And I tell people that, especially in women and, and people with a vagina, that the most common symptom of an STI is no symptoms, which is super lame and annoying because it makes our lives harder. So um, so for sure, you can have symptoms. You know, if you have herpes, you could have an outbreak. If you could see lesions or you could have discharge or burning with chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomoniasis. Um, but oftentimes we don't. And so it is important to get tested. And I really recommend following your, you know, the CDC guidelines, which is a great resource. You can look and see kind of where you fall in terms of age and then what's considered high risk. So, you know, in the the CDC guidelines, they recommend annual screening for women less than 25 and then over 25 annual, if you fall into some high risk categories, but even annual screening might not be enough. And so if you have a new partner or any symptoms, I do recommend it. And when we say screening, a lot of people think you walk into the office and you say, I want my STI screening and we order the STI screening panel, but there's no like set panel. So it's important to know what you have been tested for, but also what like maybe you haven't been tested for. So typically people think of, you know, gonorrhea, chlamydia, some people do or don't get tested for trichomonas. Um, but other things too, syphilis is on the rise in the United States, which is really not one that you want to mess with. It's treatable early on. Um, but other things too, like HPV, which is part of your, you know, part of your cervical cancer screening. Um, HIV, obviously, that's another one too. And then when it comes to herpes, I don't know, I'm sure you've run into, it's the most annoying STI out there because we don't really recommend routine screening because it, you know, if you don't have any symptoms and we do a blood test and it says you have one of the strains, it's hard to know, is it genital or is it oral? And what do you do with that? And you know, so there's, there's a lot of counseling that needs to go on with that. Um, but what I think is great is that there are services out there that if you get tested, test comes back positive. I mean, of course, ideally you're talking to your partner, but let's say you're too embarrassed or it was a one night stand. There are websites you can go to that will contact your partner and say, Hey, a recent partner has tested positive or you should be tested. Um, it kind of takes the, you know, 
the scariness of talking to them out of the way. So sometimes technology can be really cool. And some of these testing you can do in your own home too. Like mail order companies will send you tests too, which I think is nice. Yeah. And just to add a couple of things to what you said, Mm -hmm. one is that the test that they do for herpes produces a lot of false positives. And so, you know, just going in and getting tested for it, if you've never had symptoms of it, can be problematic because you may or may not actually have it. And when people get that diagnosis, that can be very stigmatizing. And you're right that so much Mm -hmm. counseling uh, often goes into that. But it's also really important to be honest with your healthcare provider about your sexual behaviors and what you're doing. Because for example, Mm -hmm. if you're having oral sex or anal sex, you know, there are tests for gonorrhea and chlamydia in terms of infections in those particular body sites. So be forthcoming about your sexual behavior so that you can get the tests that are right for you to take optimal care of your sexual health. Absolutely. Now, we're running short on time, but one other topic I wanted to explore with you is sexual desire. So low sexual desire is one of the most common sexual difficulties reported by women, and it's led to this booming industry of supplements and medications Uh designed to boost desire. So as a physician, let me ask for your take on this. Are there any pills that people can take to increase desire? And what are your favorite tips for increasing desire in cases where people are concerned about it being too low? Yeah. I would say, yeah, it's, it's an issue. And it's because especially for women that low sexual desire, it's not, it's not uncommon. And it's something that tends to get, you know, blown off and people are told to just drink a glass of wine and relax and whatever, you know, and that's just really, you're just ignoring their symptoms and just passing them along and just telling them that it's their fault. And it's not, um, I think sometimes the first part of that is really, I think education can go a long way. And when I first learned about Rosemary Bassan's theory of sexual responsiveness, that like women, we exist differently, whereas men, you know, you could be like, you want to have sex. And most women, men would be like, let's do it. Whereas for women, and this is a generalization, but tend to work in more of a, you know, we're not actively thinking about it, but we can be open. We can have sexual you know, receptivity to an advance. And then, and then comes the arousal and the desire, but we don't start with that. So you might think that you have low sexual desire when in actuality, you're completely normal. It's just that your partner or you, you just don't understand how that works. And once you understand that, you can kind of like forgive yourself a bit and be like, actually, I'm okay. And, and it's okay if, you know, I'm not walking around all the time thinking about sex. So I think that's super important. And then in terms of supplements, um, before even going down the road of talking about supplements, it's really important to figure out what's going on. Is it that you really do have low sexual desire? Is it that it's more of an orgasm issue? Is it that sex hurts? Is it that your partner is a jerk and like doesn't even care about your clitoris and like foreplay? And so really targeting those in, I think is really important and working with a sex therapist or a couples therapist to really see what's going on here. Because a lot of it is really just feeling really bad about ourselves because society makes us think that we're supposed to be virgins and pure because we're obsessed with purity culture until you get married then you're supposed to you know have the best sex of your life on your on your wedding night but nobody's ever told you how the clitoris works so it's really not fair <laughs> and then there are some supplements out there and I will be very honest with you I have not prescribed any of them not because I don't think they work but because I myself don't feel like I you know see enough people or have enough data quite yet but I do know some of my partners there are some that they do prescribe but it's very much a you know, they go over the the contraindications and and the data that's out there. But I will say that if we're to that point where we think that might work, I love bringing in, you know, the sex therapist or my vulvovaginal specialist, because a lot of times there's other things going on as well. 
Yeah. Um, but it's not as simple as just buying that, you know, the supplement from Amazon that pops up and there's so many, so many of them out there. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it's just important for people to recognize that desire is complex. There's so many different mm-hmm. factors that can affect it. And so if you have low sexual desire, you know, the first step is really stepping back and trying to figure out, well, why is this low? Yes. And, you know, part of that is your self-understanding of how desire works for you, recognizing that desire can ebb and flow over the course of your mm-hmm. life and over the course of a relationship. And it's totally normal to have those fluctuations and for it to be responsive to stress. So, you know, before you label it as a problem and you go out and mm-hmm. seek some type of medication or something, uh, you know, sort of stepping back and looking at what are the factors that influence desire for me? How do I typically experience desire is really a key first step. So thank you for sharing all of your amazing insights with us, Jennifer. It was a pleasure to have you here. And I am so looking forward to continuing our conversation in the next episode, where we'll be discussing the fascinating future of birth control. Stay tuned.